All right, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Anthony Pompliano, otherwise known as Pomp. Uh, he's been on Firewall before. Our listeners are well familiar with him. Writes an amazing newsletter called The Pomp Letter. Hosts a podcast called The Pomp Podcast. They're both pretty fantastic. And, uh, you know, he's initially you were kind of the crypto guy, but I think, you know, just in, in listening to your and reading your work over the last, you know, couple of years, you've kind of evolved into more of a big picture economic thinker. Was that like a deliberate change or how did that happen? Yeah, it, it's actually um, a pretty funny story because uh, I wasn't the crypto guy for a very long time. Right, Crypto didn't exist. Um, I'd built and sold a few companies. I'd worked at Facebook. Um, I'd. Uh, does some venture investing. And really, it's kind of like the uh, if a tree falls in the forest, and no one hears it, did it really fall? Uh, if you're not on the internet, there's an entire community of people, they never saw any of that work. And so uh, the first time that they got introduced to me definitely was with uh, Bitcoin and, and kind of cryptocurrency. And so what I quickly realized early on was uh, on the internet, having a focused message is really important if you want to break through. So if you're the guy who, you know, you're tweeting about the Yankees uh, one minute, the next minute you're tweeting about politics, the next minute you're tweeting about, you know, the guy down the street who's got a small business, and the next minute you're tweeting about something else, people are like, how do I interface with this person, right? Like, what, what is their thing? What's their shtick? But now you see this rise of people who really figured out like, hey, I'm going to be the car dealership guy, or I'm going to be the strip mall guy, or I'm going to be the, you know, a political regulation consulting guy, like what, whatever the thing is. Um, and so that for me, that was Bitcoin cryptocurrency. But now, uh, once you've got the big audience, it's really just a return back to, hey, I've always had all these interests simultaneous to building the, the audience online. I've also been doing these other things. Now I'm just talking about it more because I kind of have the the excuse to be able to do it. Yeah. And, and because of your previous experience, it's kind of a macro worldview beyond just crypto itself. So given that the world is as complicated as it's ever been, right, you know, geopolitically, um, in terms of the election, economy, just as a snapshot in your view, where is the economy today? Well, I think that what's really interesting is there's almost two different economies, right? And if you really think about uh, kind of the rich and the not rich, the rich people have benefited from all of the chaos and um, kind of pain that's happened in the economy. So in, if we go back just 2020, let's just look at kind of the last like four or five years. In 2020, there's a liquidity crisis because everyone's scared of the public health uh, issue and uh, we're getting locked in our homes, et cetera. Wealthy people, for the most part, didn't change their portfolio in March of 2020. The people who changed their portfolios when asset prices were falling, uh, now that we have hindsight, are all the people who are close to retirement. Right. They had seen 2008. They had seen that it took three, four five years for the economy to come back, for the stock market to come back. And they said, look, I'll just take the 20 percent haircut, give me my money and I want to live my life. And so it was really people close to retirement that were selling their assets. So government steps in, they print tons of money. And I think that is a huge inflection point in what the outcome was for these two different groups. Investors realized, hey, if they're going to print all this money, they're going to drop interest rates to zero. Asset prices are going to explode. And you just saw tons of capital pouring into both public and private markets. What you didn't see was the 50% of Americans who have no investable assets. They had no clue this was going on. They don't know how it works. And so they just kept with their life saving money. Well, inflation takes off. You know, official number gets over 9% at one point, probably double digits in the unofficial numbers. And the people who were saving, get absolutely destroyed, right? Housing takes off, uh, all the cost of food, gas, all this stuff becomes more expensive. And so now you look at it and you're saying, these people not only are not getting paid more money, but they're also having more expenses, they're screwed. 
the dollar that they've been saving is going down in value, and they're just in a bad situation. But at that exact moment, the wealthiest people in the world were just getting wealthier, right? Asset prices were flying. And so I think that's really the tale of like the 2020 so far is that there's this bifurcation in society. You see the wealth inequality gap really separating. And ultimately, uh, politics plays in because people want to attack one side or the other. But it's really an education issue. Right, if everyone just knew, hey, the dollar is going to lose value over time, and so you shouldn't hold dollars, you should have some sort of investable asset, right. then you probably could actually mitigate a lot of the problem. Though I would argue that human beings sort of always fall for the same thing to a certain extent, which is – so you t take the conditions you said, which was COVID hits, trillions of dollars are now flooded deliberately into the economy to try to keep things afloat – Interest rates go all the way to zero. Tons of people sell their assets and then start, you know, some hold cash, some start pouring into things like crypto or other types of investments, and everything gets wildly overvalued, right? So on the venture side, like, you know, our, our worst deals and our quietest period of investing was really in 2021 and the first half of 2022 because everything just seemed totally crazy. I mean, you're a venture investor. You, you, I'm sure you had the same, same thoughts at the time. Crypto prices obviously soared. A lot of things soared. Um, and it's always like we should know, okay, this isn't how the world really works. And yet we all fall for it every single time. Is that just human nature or do you think there's some point where we learn from that? Yeah, it, I think it's um, a little bit of human nature where just, you know, fear and greed play into it. It's really hard to control your emotions. There is this like acceleration of information now as well. You know, you just have to wait for the morning paper and you could read the physical paper and then you'd get the news kind of once a day. Then there was television, and then you could watch a little bit more often. Now with Twitter, I mean, somebody breathes at a company, and you know about it within seconds, right? You know, if you look uh, just recently, Elon Musk and, and this kind of court case about his compensation package, I mean, not only did you hear about the actual ruling within seconds of it happening, within minutes, you had multiple legal experts all opining on, right. you know, do they agree with the judge? Do they not agree with the yeah. judge? Like, you can really go down these rabbit holes. And so I think the acceleration of information uh, is a big piece of it. The other thing that I would say, though, is I do think, um, you know, the most dangerous words in finance, well, this time it's different, but <laughs> yeah. there, there's one component that's really interesting to me, which is take stocks as an example. Most value investors will look at historical, you know, valuations of stocks and they'll say, oh, this stock is overvalued based on the historicals or this is undervalued and, and they'll try to uh, allocate capital based on that. But there has been a change in how some investors, not all, but some investors look at stocks. Now, if you are going to try to hide from inflation, some people will go buy stocks instead of holding dollars. And so now what you get is you get this like monetary premium that gets added to the historical valuations. And so you want to be a student of history. You want to understand kind of you know historical valuations or whatever these data points are. But you also have to understand that there are some changes happening in the economy today. And so trying to unpack this is just a great reminder. Like investing is supposed to be really hard. Right. If you can just buy something and it goes up 10 percent or a, a 10x in a week, that's probably not going to be sustainable. And to your point, for some reason, we all get excited about that and go say, screw it. I'm going to try to get the 10x. Yeah, I remember. I know it's funny because I think I made some people mad uh, in a, a fortune story the other day about Bird where we invested in the Series A, $50 million valuation. We put in a million. Kind of made sense, right, based on our thesis. I knew people at Bird from Uber. Um and then next thing you know, it's $3 billion valuation. And we're thinking like, okay, this is really good for our moik on paper, but I don't fucking get it. This doesn't make any sense to me at all. 
And in a weird way, when Bird kind of crashed, while obviously I would have preferred to have had the games, I was like, oh, all right, at least it's, I'm not just a total idiot. Because there was that moment where I was like, maybe I'm like too stupid to be a venture capitalist because I literally don't understand what's going on here. If I remember correctly, we, we didn't invest in Bird, but if, if I remember correctly, there was a round, uh, maybe it was at $1 billion or $2 billion. Uh, but let's just say it was the $1 billion yeah. round. Uh, People invested, it got oversubscribed, and they opened up like a note yeah. at two billion. Like yeah. they like doubled the valuation. Right, overnight. People kept putting money in. <laughs> yeah, it was it was nuts. I mean, Mark Schuster from Upfront wrote this blog post that got a lot of visibility saying, you know, it's a ten billion dollar company. I'm like, that'd be fucking great. Um, and I even know we were legalizing it. It wasn't even like we were running into, you know, we had fights everywhere, but 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 they weren't insurmountable fights. But I just didn't see even with us doing our job perfectly. Um, how the market could be nearly that big. So, so you are two things at the same time, and I wonder how, how you sort of make this work, which is you're very much an independent thinker, but to do your job, you consume massive amounts of information all day, every day. How do you decide what's useful and what's noise? It's a great question. Still trying to figure that out. Um, you know, there are some things that... Um, I think maybe I've learned from like a framework standpoint. So one of the things is if I ever say something publicly that is counterintuitive or is outside of the mainstream narrative and it gets attacked aggressively, that now is a green light to me that like I'm probably hitting closer to the truth than if I was sticking with the consensus, mm -hmm. right? And, and um, if you have a default position that like the masses are always right over the long run, but the masses are actually usually wrong in the short run, then what you start to realize is, um, you know, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's the economy, et cetera, whatever the mainstream narrative is, your default has to be like, why is that true? Like, actually, I, I, my starting point is that it's not true because what you get is the acceleration of information. People haven't had time to process it yet. And so a great example was, um, you know, inflation is transitory. I mean, like that one was just incredible to me because it wasn't just, you know, the Federal Reserve or politicians saying this who almost are like incentivized to say it. I mean, these are economic reporters who are literally just parroting the state's talking points being like inflation is transitory don't worry about it and you just have to sit there and say like how do you print trillions of dollars and drop interest rates to zero and have no impact right and so it was now, like very much that how much of that was just driven by their own politics like if, if it had been because uh, you know most of that happened during during biden and and obviously there's there's a desire in the mainstream media to to not see trump return do you think if the if Trump had won real action, they still would have said that? And if so, like, it, what's influencing kind of most of the commentary? Yeah. So, <laughs> on the economic stuff, I actually don't think politics plays into it that much. I, I think that it's actually just like a lack of education of how markets work. Okay. And um, you know, it's the classic like market participant versus uh, you know academic. The academic will play with theories. The market participant, they're going to lose money if they're wrong. And so just like how much skin in the game do you have? How, how much do you actually have to understand this? Um, another example is the vaccine, right? And, and that one to me was just incredible where uh, that was very political. And you had one group of politicians being like, I would never take this vaccine. They rushed it. You know, it's coming out too quickly, et cetera. And then within weeks, it was like, everyone go take it. It's safe. And again, my whole thing was like, I actually didn't know, right? Like, hey, is it safe? Is it not? Whatever. Let's go figure it out. Let's try to you know do the work to, to understand this. But that's where I think you really saw the same person flipping on what their opinion was based on what they thought they could gain politically. And so it, it's really, really hard when things are politicized because what you're really dealing with is ultimately religion, 
right? I, I always joke, like, if you want to go convince a Democrat to become a Republican, good luck. You want to convince a Republican to become a Democrat, good luck. And so what you have to do is you have to try to strip away that and actually look at the underlying source materials and, and information. Um, but you get it wrong all the time. And you just got to understand, you know, how do you quickly correct and, and try to get as close to the truth as possible? Yeah. And we also look, the, the upside of the world we live in today is lots of people have a forum who maybe wouldn't have had the ability to kind of get their views out there now do like like you right like i don't know if you're as successful as you are without the internet without podcasts all of that stuff if you had just kind of been a traditional mainstream you know economic pundit or whatever it is but at the same time you can now find anyone to say anything that you want at any given moment and so you pick your own facts and you pick your own experts um and it really just everyone like you said just settles into their corners um, and it's really hard to sort of get any sort of broader truth through. One of my favorite questions to ask people is like, what have you changed your mind on lately? And um, you really can understand how people think in terms of um, not only what the decision or, or you know difference of opinion is, but how did they get there? Um, and then another thing is uh, when you sit and you talk with someone uh, who has uh, specific views, you can pretty quickly with a couple of questions get it like how much of this is first principles thinking versus I'm just repeating something I heard somewhere else. Right. And I think that's really, you know, people use critical thinking, these independent thought, et cetera. Like ultimately what you're trying to find is people who are first principle th thinkers because those are the people who throw them into any situation and they should be able to reason close to some sort of intelligent uh, perspective. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I find that, you know, because between my podcast and column and everything else, I've produced a decent amount of content. I actually really limit my information sources quite a bit because I feel like it just pollutes my thinking and I'm more likely to have first principle thoughts um, if I'm not sort of just hearing too many other people and what, what they think. And then I'll typically, I don't know if you do this, but like I've got probably a dozen people whose opinions I respect. And when I have some sort of thesis around tech or politics or economics or whatever it is, I'll just text them and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And then I just kind of do some market research that way. How do you go I do it? I do think that this is one of the like really big unlocks of the internet is the connectivity to other people. Um, I've probably learned more from talking to other people than I would in any other forum, right? You know, you could yeah, always go totally. read books, you could always you know do this stuff, but the people that you can get to on the internet uh, that have expertise and experience in certain topics uh, is incredible. Um, and I remember literally uh, going and you know I DM'd a guy one time. Uh, he was talking about China and Taiwan. And so I looked him up and he like used to work at the State Department and he started explaining all this stuff to me and everything. I was like, the odds of meeting this guy in the real world is zero. Right, right? right. now, all of a sudden, I'm basically getting like a personalized lecture over DM on this specific topic. Uh, and by the way, he might be wrong on some things, yep. but man, does he got a lot more experience and expertise on this than I do? Right, right. And you can at least sort of the, the distinction between when people talk about things that they really are experts in, as opposed to people just sort of talking out of their ass because they're you know paid to do so. So, w what have you changed your mind on recently? Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I, I think that. Uh, a big one is uh, the national debt. The United States is going to be able to withstand the pain for much longer than I think people realize. Um, if you look at like take the gold bug community, they've been yelling about the national debt for decade, you know, the decades. Yeah. Um, and the United States still chugging along. Uh, that doesn't mean that the debt doesn't matter. Like I, I forget who said it one time, but like if the debt doesn't matter, then like let's just make it two hundred trillion, right? Like just right. you know just jack it up and let's see what happens. Well, um, is it fair to say then that the only thing that really matters though is the interest payment, the actual principal? No one ever expects it to be repaid. 
Yeah, the principal is definitely never getting repaid. The interest payment matters, uh, and also how much do they have to devalue the currency to be able to monetize the debt, right? So if you got to mo- yeah. devalue uh, the currency by fifty percent, that's much different than if you can keep it to two to three percent a year, right? Um, but but I think that it's less about like it doesn't matter. It's just the United States can withstand you know these epic amount of debt for much longer than people realize. Um, the second thing is. Uh, if you stay on the economic topic, central banks actually do have uh, a role um, in the current you know, uh, situation of the economy in that they have been able to mitigate recessions at a much better um, you know, kind of pace and also severity than they did before we went off the uh, gold standard. And so again, that doesn't mean that the central bank model is the best model. It just means that we have to call it for what it is. And like, given the current structure, this is the best they've ever been at moderating the economy. Would you, if, if we were starting the world over today, would you have a Federal Reserve and a central bank? Or what would you do instead? No, I, I, I mean, you know, obviously Bitcoin, I think, is a much better system. Yeah. Um, if you look at it, uh, Bitcoin's monetary policy is really the, the Federal Reserve and the central bank is just the overseer of uh, the monetary policy. And so Bitcoin also has a quote unquote central bank. It's just a software database where the rules are written and they've said we're not going to change it. And so really what you have is you have two different systems, right? You have one system uh, in kind of this fiat world where uh, they respond to what happens in the world. So if the economy gets uh, really tight and there's liquidity crisis, they respond trying to put out the fire. Right. If it gets too hot, they try to tighten the economy and and reel everything back in in this kind of software driven monetary policy, which, you know, if we were describing it in today's words uh, to get everyone excited, you would say, hey, I have an artificial intelligence, you know, automated uh, monetary policy uh, currency. And people are like, oh, okay, like we're going to automate the central bankers. But what that really is, is saying, no, the world is going to conform to the monetary policy. It's not going to change regardless of good times, bad times, how much demand there is, et cetera. And that's really the way that the world worked up until 1971. So you have this like balance, right, of, yes, we have had immense uh, economic production and uh, innovation and all these things that have happened since 1971, mainly because we had the global reserve currency and we were able to uh, go off that gold standard and and really drive a debt-fueled economy. The downside is that it's probably not sustainable at some point. But if you can do it for 100 years, was it worth it? I think that's a big question, and you know, frankly, um, it, it's the question of like, how much are you willing to give up in the future to get today, uh, which is yeah, you know, one of the hardest things for humans. Right. The real, right. Most, most, at least, politicians would say everything. Uh, <laughs> so that's 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 the problem that we're uh, that we're facing from a long term economic perspective. How are you thinking about AI? And and what I guess my real question is, throughout history, typically when there is a massive transformational shift in the economy. And there's all these predictions of there's like, you know endless unemployment forever. The economy kind of transitions, new industries get created, and actually it ends up being bigger and better than it was before. Um, but it's hard to envision what that's going to be before it happens, right? So are you someone who says, you know what, we're going to figure it out, or are you looking at it and saying, you know, mass unemployment, especially in sort of like you know lower skill white collar jobs, um, that AI can just do a lot easier. About 150 years ago, 98% of the population were farmers, right? Right. Today, it's like less than 2%. And so when you think of it that way, it's like, man, we really killed all the farmers' jobs. 
but we all went and found other things to do. And so I think that is a true story through history. If you look at all this yeah. technology, innovation, et cetera. Now, what I do think is interesting about artificial intelligence is it, it is less about artificial intelligence and it's more about this kind of rise of automation. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So as an investor, a lot of times you will look at demographics. Right. You know, you can look at a country like Nigeria. Nigeria's got about 250 million people. It's growing at an incredibly fast rate. It's got very young population, very good Internet uh, penetration and mobile phone penetration. Mm -hmm. So people are excited about you know, the country of Nigeria and all these things that are going to happen because the demographics suggest it's young and growing fast. Compare that to the United States, where now we have hit basically 0% population growth in the United States for the first time year over year. And so now people are saying, wait a minute, are we more like maybe a Japan, which really stagnated for a while because it got an older population, et cetera. But now there's going to be this rise of robotics and automation. And so in some weird way, investors are going to have to say, okay, I still need to pay attention to demographics, but maybe the more important thing from an understanding of productivity in the future is how many robots are being produced in the country? Because now it's not people doing it. We actually will have a workforce that is machines. And, you and mean, it, what, what are, the, are those machines doing kind of like blue collar? You know, are they doing gardening and factory work or are they doing, you know, PR and paralegal work? I think that they're going to do everything, right? And, and what I mean by that is um, it is a continuation of the trend that has existed forever in history. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, QuickBooks, in a weird way, took jobs, right? Sure. It went and it said, hey, now all of a sudden, you, Bradley, you can manage your own finances. You don't have to have a bookkeeper. You don't yeah. have to have you know, uh, somebody that you pay that's an accounting firm, et cetera. We're going to give you this software. There was no hysteria when QuickBooks came out that people were like, oh, my God, QuickBooks is going to kill the accounting industry, right? Right. Um, on another note, though, there was a lot of hysteria when ATMs first came out because people thought that they were going to take bank teller jobs. Well, they must and have, though, right? They didn't. There's really? more bank tellers today than in any time in history. And the reason being is because the ATMs merely opened up access, brought more people into the banking system. Right. And there you need more people on the bank tellers. And so when you when you look at some of these things, you, you start to realize like uh, – the people that are getting quote unquote replaced, it's really just a push towards efficiency. So when people hear innovation, if you just think we're becoming more efficient, that's actually a positive thing. And the people who are displaced, which definitely will happen, we need to do a really good job of helping retrain them, help them find other jobs, et cetera. But I don't see kind of mass unemployment being an option because throughout history, the people who get displaced, they merely go and they find other jobs. Right. Um, so, you know, interesting thing that it, I have this thesis, kind of budding thesis, that totally unproven and unstudied, that the 1990s was a sort of unicorn moment in history where the world was kind of aligned on peace and prosperity. People were bought into the notions of democracy and capitalism, bought into the notion of free trade, um, and as a result, um, there was these sort of mass economic shifts that happened, and by the way, bringing billions of people out of extreme poverty and, and making their lives a lot better, but also creating new pressures on economies that I think resulted in a lot of the uh, authoritarian politicians, whether it's a, a Putin, a Modi, a Xi, a Trump, a Netanyahu, whoever it is, uh, put in power around the world. Um, I mean, do you feel like ultimately if you can go back into the 90s and say, okay, we can do NAFTA and the Asia Pacific and all of the stuff that we ended up doing and what it led to, or 
let's sort of not do this and try to kind of pr protect U.S. industry, um, even at the expense of U.S. consumers in a way, what would you do? So I'm going to answer this by looking at uh, ultimately, like, what is the difference between Americans and most other people in the world? Um, there's this great book, uh, I believe it's called uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Okay. And one of the things that he talks about is uh, there's a very unique experience that Americans have at the end of life, which is Americans die in hospitals at a much higher rate than almost anywhere else in the world. And the reason being that America is built on the idea of individualism. Kids move out of the home very uh, early and at a much faster pace than staying with their families. Yeah. The adults then as they get older, they don't want to be a burden on their children. They don't want to move back in with their children, have their families take care of them, et cetera. And so this benefit of individualism that led to the rise of America and all this great economic progress, et cetera, has downsides. And if you really think about that idea, America gave in from an individualistic perspective of we should just build everything here in America. And they said, hey, we're going to go and be globalist. And yeah. so now what we're going to do is we're going to chase efficiency and we're going to chase um, kind of all of these benefits that we've been promised from this globalist movement. And just like in politics, just like in economies, extremes tend to cause problems. Yep. And so rather than chase the ultimate extreme of the globalist kind of uh, perspective, I think probably what would have been better is to say, look, some of this, yes, we should participate, but some of it is a national security issue and we should really focus on being uh, kind of domestically strong. Like what we're doing with microchips now. Yes. And so when, when you look at some of this, it's hard to predict, right, for sure. But um, I, I forget all the details of the TSMC uh, story, but like I think that he worked in the United States and he got kicked out of the U.S. <laughs> right. and then went and started TSMC in Taiwan. Right. Right. right? Like that, like we, we shot ourselves in the foot there. That's like a self-owned goal. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you look through history, like we've done a couple of these <laughs> that tend to be a pretty big deal. And so, again, could we have predicted that some, you know, at the time, random employee was going to go and do all that? No, of course not. But I do think that it is really important for us to, to have a perspective of technology and innovation and, and ultimately capitalism and capitalistic pursuits happening in the United States are much more important from a national security standpoint than maybe politicians right. and others would give it credit. Right. And, and also in a weird way. We kind of sacrificed some of the upsides of our system without internalizing the benefits of the other systems, meaning that um, other societies are much more communal. You know, parents are taken care of when they're elderly by their kids. People tend to stay in their, in their communities more. Um, and in some ways, you know, that really helps because human beings require connection, right? We have this massive loneliness epidemic. Uh, across the Western world, I think in part because of everything you just said. Um, so in some ways, we, we sacrifice some of the benefits of sort of this relentless pursuit of individualism from an economic standpoint in the U.S. without adopting culturally any of the parts of the other systems around the world. Like, you know, what's interesting when you mentioned Nigeria is, you know, in, th in theory, at least, they've got the fundamentals to build a really strong, long-term productive capitalist economy, but they also have systems of living that I think, you know, produce a lot more relationships and fulfillment and, and therefore happiness, right? It always feels like we're right now making this sort of choice where it's either we can have abundant material resources in the West, but at the expense of kind of community and family and relationships in a lot of ways, 
or we can have that, but then really struggle in basic things like clean, clean drinking water or freedom of speech or whatever it is, isn't afforded to you, right? And the, the, I, I would imagine that the goal would be to be able to have the economic efficiency of capitalism with sort of the familial structure uh, of how the third world tends to live, and that way you can kind of maximize both resources and convenience and happiness. I mean, do you see a world that we can ever get to that? Yeah, I mean, look, Amazon is a great example where uh, there are politicians who are still trying to get, in their own states, $15 an hour minimum wage uh, laws passed, yep. right? Amazon, I think now is the average person's being paid like 19 or 20 bucks an hour at the company. And I don't think they're doing it because they feel like they're doing handouts, right? Like the no. market has forced them to do it if they want to yeah. have employees and they need as many as they, you know, they, I think they hired like 500,000 in 2020 or something. If you need to get that many people, you got to pay them a, a wage that's willing to get them to come and work. And so in some way, the market drove what was really a political discussion much faster than the politicians could. And so if you take that and you extrapolate it out across the economy and, you know, where else can we get efficiency? Where else can we have kind of a, a bigger benefit to people where politicians may be holding it up? And it's not to say that politicians are, are wrong. They're just using the tools that are in, kind of in their toolbox, right? They, they, they can't use the market force. And so when you look at maybe, let's say, U.S. manufacturing, uh, yes, companies want to have really inexpensive uh, production of their goods. Well, historically, that has been go to Southeast Asia and you can get really cheap labor and you can get these materials made. And even though it costs money to ship back, that still is going to cost less than doing it here in the United States. Well, how do we solve that problem? It's not going to be let's go get a bunch of American workers and put them in American factories, right? Because you're not going to be able to convince them to take the wage of somebody working in Southeast Asia. Right. Instead, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to have a rise of machinery, of automation, of all this artificial intelligence, et cetera. And so when you start looking at it from that perspective, I think that's really where people start saying, wait a second, so where do the American workers go? And that fear is real. But really what I continue to remind people is like, if you're on Twitter all day, one of the potential downfalls is you will think the world is ending, Yeah. right? People are do a fantastic job of like doomsday. But you just have to remind yourself, we live in the safest, most prosperous time in human history. Yep. America is still the greatest experiment that we've ever conducted. Yep. It's the best system. And we got a lot of flaws. We got to fix them. We got to you know improve, do all these things. But at the end of the day, we have cars that drive themselves. And like the self-driving car thing blows my mind because now data is coming out from insurance companies. Again, these aren't self-driving cars conducting these studies themselves. Right. This isn't the government. These are insurance companies that are betting billions of dollars in the market on being correct on what is the accident rate of these self-driving cars. And the data is showing that they're four times safer than human drivers. But almost to the day those reports came out, San Francisco is like banning some of the self-driving cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. I know. I know. Not, not only is it crazy, but it seemed to me, so there was the, when San Francisco actually had that moment where they did the cruise deal, I was like, oh, good for them. They understand they're in this doom loop. They understand that the tech is sort of their only way out. And if they kind of become the permissive regulatory environment for all kinds of AI, including autonomous driving, that could be their way back, right? And I, was, I gave them like credit that, and then turns out they didn't, weren't thinking that way <laughs> at, yeah. at all. Well, and, the, and the reasons why were like pretty dumb. Right. Like there, there was things where uh, I think somebody got hit by one, but it yeah. turns out that like the person actually w was uh, uh, at fault and not the car. There was another one where there was kind of like a traffic jam and it turns out like I think it was like a city vehicle or something had like pulled in a weird way. And so, again, there's all these edge cases, you know, 
of course people will find things to latch on to but but i do think that it's um you know the the like techno optimistic view versus this like doomsday view and as you know maybe amateurish or simple as those two uh kind of pitted against each other is i really do think that's kind of what we're facing do you think technology can build a better world and do you want to be a part of that or do you think that technology is going to kill people and, and do all these crazy things and uh you fear technology so so you're, I, you i don't see the second one right now I'm, I'm obviously with you here but your business obviously requires you to be on twitter and, and, and other platforms all day long if if you don't have to do that for your work based on everything you just said about sort of the the Globe, the perspective on life you get if you spend too much time on on social. What would your personal advice be, uh, or any, or what are you? Gonna, what, what will when your kids are old enough to to you know use use social by themselves? What will your policies be? I, I think that most people uh, they're wired not to be optimists in a weird way, right? Like mm -hmm. like you if you uh, are in a certain situation in life, if you've grown up a certain way, uh, you're wired to have a pessimistic view. And maybe most is an exaggeration. Maybe it's a, a big portion of people. And so the first thing is like, it doesn't matter if you're on the internet or not, if you're a pessimistic person, like you're always gonna see the negative and everything. Yep. And so getting into the optimistic viewpoint, I think is, is uh, much better. Um, and, and then in terms of consuming the information, like. I'm not watching a bunch of like what people would generalize as like TikTok videos on the internet where people are like doing dances, right? I'm reading things that are like more academic focused or more kind of, you know, quote unquote intelligent. Yeah. Uh, and then some good memes along the way too, right? But like in, in terms of the content that you are consuming, um, there's something for everyone. And so I think of the algorithm as I'm training it. And so the more I engage with a certain type of content, the algorithm is going to give me more of that. But if all of a sudden I started watching all the you know TikTok dancing videos, well, the algorithm is going to be like, dude, this guy loves TikTok dancing videos and he's going to give him more of it. And so if you almost view your consumption habit as like you're training the algorithm right. to give you more of it, yeah. now all of a sudden you start to you know, move in the direction that you want to do. When you're aimless or you're unintentional about training the algorithm, then you get a bunch of shit and you, know, you kind of get what you deserve uh, to some degree from your uh, behaviors. So last few weeks, there's been uh, a, a lot of sort of layoffs in the media, Washington Post, LA Times, Sports Illustrated announced they were closing, Pitchfork. A and the con conventional wisdom, the consensus is media is doomed, the business model can't work, the sky is falling. You run a successful media business. Your wife, Polina, runs a successful media business. Your brother, Joe, runs a successful media business. So what are you guys doing right that mainstream media doesn't seem to get and do you agree this guy is falling or are there just adjustments they need to make? So I think you got to separate out uh, the journalist from management first. Okay. This is not the fault of the journalist, right? They're kind of the ones who get affected, yeah. um, but they are going to work. And just like any other you know, employee to business, they're trying to do a good job. Right. They they're doing the best they can. They're writing their stories. They're doing, you know, uh, kind of the research and, and all this stuff. And then one day they wake up and 10 percent of the workforce gets fired. Right. Yeah. This is 100 percent on management. And I've had the uh, fortune to uh, talk to a ton of management across all of these different media companies over the years. Um, and it's just bad management. Right. I mean, if you really boil it down, like at the end of the day, there's a simple formula of spend less than you make. And they don't do that. And so in some weird way, um, many of these businesses actually should not be 
going out of business or firing a ton of people, et cetera, if it wasn't for decisions that were made over the last 10 years or so when it was growth at all costs or they chose uh, business models where if you hand all of your traffic over to Facebook, this is coming from a guy who ran the growth team for Facebook pages and all these publishers were going on there, et cetera. If you hand all your traffic over to them, guess what? They may take it away at some point. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like, it, you know, when you are a first principles thinker, you say, well, why are we handing all of our traffic over to them? Well, it's because we are solely based on this ad model. Right. And we need as much traffic as possible to get the ad revenue. And so some businesses like the New York Times, they're not struggling. They're actually doing incredibly well because what have they been doing? They've been transforming their business to adapt for this new environment. They've been building out a subscription business. They've been going into multimedia, et cetera. And so it's not every company is failing, right? Or every company is under pressure. It's actually some that management was uh, not willing to recognize a change in the market, which happens in every industry, right? We're not picking just on the media company. Now, what I will say is, um, Myself, my wife, my brother, we've all built uh, kind of these media properties. But what we've learned is that this is a playbook that you can run over and over and over again in different verticals. So now it's not just about, hey, let's build one around a person. Let's actually go build true media businesses around a brand. Um, and so what you find in, in kind of building these things, like we have one uh, called Resi Club. It's uh, residential real estate. Re residential real estate is the largest asset class in the world, but there's no dominant uh, kind of coverage in terms of news data and commentary. We went, we hired a guy, uh, Lance Lampert, uh, who co-founded the business with us. He was the uh, lead real estate reporter at Fortune Magazine. And Lance and us have built a pretty interesting business very, very quickly. And what you realize is like there's not that much overhead. Right. There's not that much cost structure to it. And so now we can start to hire people from a position of strength with a profitable business and keep an eye on the expenses. And so no different than why do why small businesses go out of business, right? Why do restaurants go out of business? Well, it's because they can't make enough money to cover the cost. In these media companies, it's like the most asset light model of all time. Right. What are your costs? It's human capital. Right. That, that's pretty much it. Maybe you've got a little bit of software for a CMS or some sort of email software or something. But in the early days, there's really no cost. But when you go look at these, you know, go, go look at BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed made $400 million last year. They lost $50 million. And if I asked you how many people work at BuzzFeed, you probably would guess a couple hundred. Almost 2,500 people, if I remember correctly, work at BuzzFeed. Wow. And you say to yourself, okay, well, Elon went into Twitter and he fired a bunch of people. And it still worked. I don't know if that happens at BuzzFeed. Like, how dependent are they on you know, is, 2,000 is that, people? So, so divvy up the blame here, two categories. One would be VCs like me, although hopefully not me specifically in this case, that uh, are so demanding of growth that they say, don't worry about any underlying metrics, don't worry about unit economics, don't worry about profitability, and therefore the Jonah parties of the world listen to, to, their, to their investors. Or is it people who typically start media companies are not like you where they're coming from the business world first and the notion of working off of a P&L ahead of anything else doesn't really make sense to them. And as a result, they're just poor, poor business people and poor managers. So let me correct myself. Vice has like 2,500 people. BuzzFeed has 1,400, which again, just shows Still like crazy. it's all these different companies, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. For, first rule of building a media company. I was actually having this conversation with somebody uh, yesterday. Uh, you're not building a startup. Like VC-fueled growth of a media organization almost never works. You're yeah. basically just running off the cliff. Um, the second thing is uh, 
getting advice from VCs. I think Vinod Kosla said it like 90% of them are actually here to destroy your business and they don't even realize it. Right. <laughs> like, um, and, and so who you get advice from sometimes is more important than what the advice is you get. Yep. Um, and, and so if you go and you talk to some of these, you know, kind of, uh, uh, people who have been through the media battle and, and these executives who've, who've been around for a long time, they know this is a problem. Right. They, they've now recognized it. And they're, they're kind of self-correcting. Uh, really where I think you see a lot of the issue is it's outsiders, people who haven't come from the media organizations. What they do is they go, they raise a bunch of venture capital. It's, you know, blitz scale their way to a ton of growth. And maybe the only people who pulled it off is the athletic in the last, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah. You know, they, they got bought by The New York Times um, and, and did a great job. But for every athletic, there's 10 more that are laying in the graveyard of you know, these media organizations who just couldn't raise the next round, couldn't get you know that breakthrough. Um, and, and so I think it's just media will never go away. It's been around since the beginning of time. It's going to continue to be around. Uh, but you got to run the businesses in a very different way than you run a tech startup. Right. And, and on the VC side especially, I would argue in the past decade, there's been too much expansion of venture funds, venture investing, everything else. And so you have lots of money chasing relatively few good deals. And as a result, people have to sort of create these narratives and myths to justify their strategy to their LPs and to their founders and, and everything else. Like for someone like me, it's kind of easy because we have such a specific niche value proposition that we invest in what we know, right? Either I know how to make the regulations work and that will allow this company to succeed or I don't, right? And like, therefore, we don't sort of fall off the cliff too often because we're working off first principles, like you would say, right? Um, do you think that there's going to be now, just given the 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 fallout of venture over the past couple of years, enough contraction that there will be less dumb money chasing deals? So um, I am both hyper bullish on venture capital and also very very bearish. Okay. And again, there's a bifurcation of of venture funds, right? So um, if you go back and you look at the returns, uh, only like the top, I don't know, twenty percent of venture funds actually deliver a return that is attractive. The average fund is delivering less than what the S&P or NASDAQ uh, would be delivering. And so when you see that, you're like, okay, why is that happening? There's more competition. Mm -hmm. There's the same number of good deals and less companies are going public. So now all of a sudden you've got the best companies staying private for longer, which is affecting returns as well. And so when you see all of that, you're like, okay, who is going to make money in venture in the next you know, 10 to 15 years? It's people who have unique value propositions. That could be their brand and history. That could be a strategy like you guys are pursuing. It could be a new way to do it, right? Is there a venture studio that's going to have incredible returns or an accelerator or something like that, right? But, but having something unique is really important, which actually is a theme across society today because whenever you have abundance, the way to break through the no noise is to be unique. So how do you break through the noise as a venture fund? You have to be unique. How do you break through the noise on the media front? You got to be unique, right? Yep. What is that uniqueness that you bring to the table? Now, the reason why I am uh, bearish on a lot of venture is because most of the funds are not that good, right? I've invested in 200 companies or so. I've seen the behavior that tons of these venture capitals have. I also have raised money for companies, whether there are companies that we help to co-found or companies that we own outright. And I can tell you that 90% of the uh, investors, here's what they do. They invest their money and they say, let me know if you need any help. And then people send updates. And 
they don't even respond. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, and again, it, it, it's actually the second best thing they can do. I always joke with founders. I say, look, the first best thing an investor can do is be super helpful and like continue to help you break down walls and reduce friction and do all that stuff. The second best thing they can do is nothing because there's a whole bunch of bad shit that they could do. Yep. Right. In terms of being too in the weeds and, and et cetera. Yep. And so I, I do think that venture capital will continue uh, the best people will have outperformance and drive great returns. It's just that now it became commoditized to a degree right. and people are selling capital. And what they're going to realize is that capital in a world where there's only so many good companies is actually a really, really bad thing to be selling because the best people are not selling capital. They're selling some other unique value. And, and they've got to know what they don't know. So it's interesting for us. We kind of are the only game in town on the regulatory side. So I don't get too much pushback from other funds around regulatory strategy. But a lot of them, when they built their platforms, decided that PR would be one of their competencies. And so we're giving sometimes conflicting comms advice to our portfolio companies. And I'm like, dude, like my literal first couple of jobs were as comms directors for people. Like I understand this thing in a way that like you're just never, I don't care that you went to Stanford Business School, it doesn't fucking matter. Um, and just, you know, it's funny that we have to like fight our way through this sometimes. And uh, you know, really big name funds giving really shitty comms advice to portfolio companies because they don't know what they don't know. Well, it's also, um, you know, think of like kind of a war analogy, right? If uh, if we want to send someone uh, overseas uh, to, I don't know, go kill a high profile terrorist, we don't like call up the mechanized army. We're like, let's take all the tanks and let's just roll in there, you know, in the middle of the day with 5,000 soldiers. No, we call up the Navy SEALs and we're like, hey, guys, in the middle of the night, right, when no one knows that you're there, you're going to go kill this guy. Same thing ends up happening with comms. The way a startup operates is much more akin to the Navy SEALs yeah, and having totally. to, you know, kind of have the quote unquote insurgent strategy than it is, you know, kind of the Fortune 500. Let's go do a bunch of press releases and let's call up Bloomberg and we'll do a sit down in our office and, and all of that. And so um, I, I think that people who have never done whatever they're giving advice on a lot of times will revert to what they read in a book or, or what somebody told them. But it's people like you who have sat and said, I mean, you've been in some some pretty big comms battles, right? Like you've got the battle scars. (laughs) There's a couple people in the world that you're like, hey, if I'm going to the fist fight, right, I want to bring them. I don't want to bring the the thing on comms to me that's the worst is that a lot of them, the strategy they're using is like what they see in fiction, like on TV shows or in novels where it's like, oh, I'm going to be the best spinmeister out there. And it's like, I would argue 99% of the time, the best spin is no spin at all, right? And like, just, you know, you're nodding, Hugo, who was, you know, the editor of the New York Times Magazine sitting here nodding. I'm like, but I, I really do feel like you have to have worked on either side of the equation in comms to, to truly, for a long time, for major battles to understand that. And if not, you just fall prey to all of these sort of false stereotypes and you end up giving people terrible advice. Yeah, look, in the the internet has done a fantastic job of exposing who's authentic and who's not, right? And at the end of the day, uh, almost every time, the best thing to do is just flat out say, what happened? What are you thinking? And people can use their bullshit meters to very quickly figure out who they believe and who they don't. There's a, um, a, a thing that I always love is like when the politicians do the apology and they've got like all the flags in the background yeah. and they're obviously reading from a teleprompter and you're just like droning out watching it. You're like, I don't even know what they're saying. They're right. Making, like just they're like making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's just bullshit. Right. Versus if you look at somebody like, I don't know, use Dave Portnoy as an example, right? Again, regardless of what you think of the guy, uh, there's one thing that he's world-class at 
he pulls out his phone and he just starts talking. And you may not even agree with what he's saying, but you're just like, hey, I'm getting I'm getting his view. Yep. Right. Yep. And those are very extreme in terms of the politician versus a Dave Portnoy. But there is some middle ground there that whether you're a, a founder, an executive, a company, whatever, like it's don't go to the politician extreme, right? There is this degree of authenticity that I think works. And so it feeds back into like, why does some of the media stuff work? Like how many reporters actually say what they believe online? Very few of them, right? right? But guess what? The ones that you and I can think of that do it, everyone follows them. Right. <laughs> right? Everyone is attracted to, to reading what they read because like, oh, this person isn't just writing some you know clinical article that they've had seven different editors clean up so that they can't possibly say something that might offend someone. Right. Instead, what you're doing is you're looking for where is that authentic, unique view of the world and this individual I want to follow versus well, this clinical and, brand. And it's funny, which is it, part of it is about early career risk tolerance, right, which is what the reporters who aren't saying what they think, the excuse they'll make is, well, you know, Jim Cramer – you know, whether you agree with Kramer's views or not, he's so famous, he's too big to fail, so he can say whatever he wants because he's built this incredible brand first. And I don't really like, I haven't followed Jim Kramer's career since day one, but my guess is he's always fucking been like this, right? And, he's probably more watered down now than he was in the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> and because he had the balls to just always say what he thinks and know that that was going to come with blowback, he was able to therefore build credibility and trust and an audience and it feeds upon itself and i think a lot of the time i see this with my, my students uh in business school that like they're so wedded to sort of these risk averse strategies to try to get from point a to point b to point c that like you can probably get to b or c but if your goal is to get to g or whatever letter you want that represents like extreme success like you can't do that with sort of conventional wisdom the uh, a great example of this is so uh, my brother Joe uh, worked at uh, a major bank in July of 2020. He decided he wanted to go do the content things, and people don't realize um, he went in and when he quit his job, his boss said to him, "You're going to do what? You're going to go be a writer on the internet?" Like he like couldn't believe right. it, right? And my brother was like, you know, I mean, regardless of how mentally tough you are, etc. Like this person that you respect, who's your boss, whatever, says that to you, you kind of walk out and you're like, "Am I making a mistake?" Right? right. And then he started to uh, have some success and, and start growing a following and, and writing, et cetera. And then the like sports journalists started coming for him. And they were like, oh, you're only getting an audience because your brother's got a big audience. Like, you know, you're an idiot. Like, what do you know about this stuff? You know, c coming at him, whatever. Three years later, just yesterday, he interviewed Tom Brady on his podcast. He, CNBC, and I think uh, Pat McAfee show. Those were the three interviews Tom chose to do when he, he made an announcement. And all of a sudden, a bunch of those same people who, you know, two years ago, three years ago, had been talking all this shit, et cetera, coming at them. Now they're like, well, it's kind of undeniable now, right? You got to kind of say, hey, look, this guy took a bet on himself and it worked. And so what's interesting is it's not just about are you willing to say stuff? It's also if you say the things, are you resilient enough to deal with all that blowback? So to your point about Jim Cramer, right. it's one thing just to say the crazy things and be comfortable saying it and knowing you said it and it's out there. But also it's can you deal with that blowback? And so what I find is uh, there's a degree of self-confidence that has to uh, be present that a lot of people, for whatever reason, they hide behind like the shield of the major media companies. Yeah. Like, oh, I work at you know whatever organization. On the internet, it is ultimately a free market of ideas. You got to win in the free market. And so it's much harder, especially if you don't have that you know brand behind you. But really, those are the people who probably have the best longevity and the best resilience is because they've had to do the hard thing of winning in the free market. Yeah. 
totally. Um, we could just keep doing this all day, but I know I gotta let you go. So, um, Pomp, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, what's the best way for people to subscribe to your newsletter, podcast, follow your, your thinking? Um, if they just go to Twitter, at uh, Apompliano, um, I tweet about all the stuff, so they'll find it all there. There you go, cool. Pomp, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.